Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medical University of South Carolina Science Never Sleeps podcast. Our conversation today focuses on a developmental disorder that is frequently mentioned but poorly understood, autism, or more appropriately, Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD. Fortunately, our guest, Dr. Laura Arnstein Carpenter, specializes in autism spectrum disorder and has much to offer us in understanding and clarifying this disease. Dr. Carpenter is a professor in the College of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. She received her PhD from Binghamton University and completed her residency and fellowship here at the Medical University of South Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Carpenter. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. I would imagine any parent who is told their child has autism would feel the world has turned upside down. So let's see if we can diminish some anxieties and dispel some rumors. As someone with quite a bit of clinical and research expertise on this matter, how would you define autism spectrum disorder and how prevalent is it? So we know that about one in 54 kids has autism, but it's four times more common in boys than girls. So there are many more boys on the spectrum than there are girls. Um, Autism is comprised of two sets of symptoms. So we have problems with social communication and then unusual behaviors, those Mm. restricted repetitive behaviors. So the social communication problems really run the whole gamut from not being interested in other people, not being aware of other people, to the other extreme of being very interested in other people but just not having the skills necessary in order to interact. And then the restricted repetitive behaviors can be anything from unusual motor movements, obsessive interests, sensory differences, Mm -hmm. or behavioral rigidity. That causes a lot of problems for people on the spectrum. That's a a wide variety of of symptoms. That's really quite interesting. why, why are boys more uh, susceptible to it, if you will? So we think that there are some biological protective factors along with some social factors. So from a biological perspective, we know that girls on the spectrum um, have more family members with autistic features. They're more likely to have um, genetic changes associated with autism, and they're typically more impaired than boys on the spectrum. And so that tells us that there may be some biological protective factors where girls have to have more risk factors in order to develop autism. And then I also think, you know, that there are some social factors involved. So, you know, um, when someone sees a girl that's obsessed with Disney princesses, they might not immediately think autism. That's but when they thought. see a boy that's obsessed with trains, maybe one of their first thoughts is autism. Um, I think people have a tendency to think of little girls as shy rather than maybe truly disinterested in social interaction or um, lacking in social skills. Um, And then finally, I also think there are problems with our diagnostic tests. So if you know that, you know, there are four times as many boys with autism as girls, then you have to think that our diagnostic tests were normed mostly on boys. Oh, wow. And so they're really looking for boy symptoms. And so I think there are some, you know, true under-identification of girls along with the truth that girls just don't develop autism at the rate that boys do. That is, that's fascinating. I had no idea. Um, I have heard many theories on the cause of ASD. Um, you see it in social media. You just hear it from the lay uh, audience. You hear it from parents. Everything from vaccines to the age of parents to genetics are causes for autism. What are the common misconceptions, and what does your research indicate? 
So first of all, there has been millions and millions of dollars spent looking at this vaccine autism connection and there really is no connection between autism and vaccines and what you're seeing is um, our brains tend to look for patterns mm -hmm. so we tend to give our babies a lot of vaccines around 18 months and that's when symptoms of autism first become apparent and so of course you're going to see this like correlation yeah. between giving your baby a vaccine and your baby developing symptoms of autism even if it's not causal we know that autism is caused by a variety of genetic factors and environmental factors. And we have a much better understanding of the genetic side than the environmental side. So from a genetic standpoint, there are um, more than 150 single gene um, changes that seem to be associated with autism. And then- 150, I, say that again, please. Uh, there are more than 150 single gene changes that are associated with autism more than 20 what we call copy number variants associated with autism. But the amazing part is that we think that there are 100 more to still be discovered. Um, and the truth is that most scientists at this point think that we're not just looking at one autism. We're looking at multiple autisms and that there are many different pathways to autism and that if we can kind of figure out which pathway a specific child took, then we could do a better what job of matching a treatment to their type of autism. Is that almost like, um, just to clarify in my mind, is that almost like there is the big word cancer, but then there are many cancers and they all have different treatment options and they have different causes? Yeah. So it's, it's the same idea as like a precision medicine or personalized medicine. Right now, when I make a diagnosis of autism in a two-year-old, I'm pretty much making the same recommendations for every single child um, with, you know, some small variations. Um, and we know that not all the treatments work for every child, um, but we don't know which kids which treatments are going to work for. And so... Um, if we can figure out all of those different genetic pathways, then I think we could do a much better job of supporting kids and supporting families. So the other side of things, that's the genetic side. The other side is the environmental side. And we know that there are both genetic and environmental factors because we have identical twins who are what we call discordant for autism, meaning that one has autism and the other doesn't. It's very rare, but these are babies with the same genetics um, who are coming out with quite different hmm. um, you know, what we call phenotypes, um, presentations. And so um, we think in those cases that there are some sort of environmental causes going on that, you know, cha potentially change the expression of genes. Mm. Um, so some of the things that we know for sure are that older parents and particularly older dads have a much higher risk of having a child with autism. And um, we know that being born early confers a risk of having autism, so being a preemie. Um, but there's so many other risk factors that we don't understand, yeah. like what, what could cause those genetic changes in the environment um, and what we even mean by environment. You know, do we mean... Yeah smog or pollution um, or and or do we mean um, epigenetic effects so things that have happened maybe to your mother or to your grandmother and now are being passed down across generations who does that kind of research is it a neurologist is it is it a pedi who's doing that kind of research into um, what's happening 
physically? So it depends on uh, you know what level. So when you're talking about these really big environmental studies, um, you've got to have epidemiologists on board because they understand how to look at research, you know, across large numbers of people. When you're talking about this genetic research, you have to have people with expertise in genetics who can you know look at a genome and identify where the changes are happening and then see those changes across lots of different kids. What is the long-term prognosis for adults with autism? So I think we've all heard about adults that have had really good outcomes. Like, you know, you think of um, these really famous guys, like tech guys, that have had these amazing careers and have contributed so much. And um, I think in those cases, what's happened is that um, those intense interests that we see in autism, that hyper-focus or sticky attention, has really been channeled in the right direction, right? These folks have learned, you know, have really focused on a particular career path. Maybe they think a little bit differently. They think outside the box, so they're able to see things the rest of us don't see. Um, but the truth is that a lot of my patients are still really struggling in adulthood. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's not that their symptoms get worse over time. In fact, most people with autism are continually making improvements. They're learning social skills. Their symptoms are not getting worse, but what's changing are the environmental demands, right? So when you're a third grader, people don't expect as much from you in terms of like complex social interactions as they do when you're, you know, a college graduate in the workforce. And so right now, I think, you know, Along the way in school, we're not doing enough to help kids learn those soft skills, those social skills that they need to have um, in order to be successful 10, 15 years down the road when they enter the workforce. So even my patients that are graduating successfully from high school, graduating successfully from college, it's kind of like a now what? (laughs) You know, they, they get a job or they're not able to get a job or they do get a job and they can't maintain that job. And, um, Certainly there are some innovative programs out there to try to support those kids, but it's not nearly enough. And you see a lot of people on the spectrum who are either completely unemployed mm. or dramatically underemployed. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a person with a you know bachelor's degree in computer science who's stocking shelves at Walmart, you know? Yeah, that's that's really tough. And I think, you know, especially in adults, we also have this problem of under-identification, right? Because 20 years ago, we thought of autism as this very narrow disorder where kids right. were extremely impaired and had these very specific, you know, sets of characteristics. And now we're doing a much better job of picking up autism in a range of people. So kids who are extremely bright, gifted, but still have social problems and unusual behaviors. And then kids at the other end who have pretty significant cognitive delays, I think in the past, those delays would have overshadowed the Mm -hmm. symptoms of autism. And now we're recognizing autism in those folks as well. But if you're talking about, you know, people in their 20s, 30s and beyond, the chances that they would have gotten a diagnosis as a kid are very low. Wow. So that makes it even harder to get support services, right? If you've never even been diagnosed, there's not a lot of people out there who do adult diagnoses. So I think there are multiple facets to this crisis. The fact that there's not supports available, particularly for um, people who don't have intellectual disabilities, right? If you have an intellectual disability, there's a whole system that can help you get jobs and get supported employment. But if you don't have an intellectual disability, those systems of care aren't there. 
then you don't have a diagnosis. You're certainly not going to get access. You might not even know that you don't have a diagnosis right. and that something else is going on. Perhaps you've been told your whole life that, you know, you're just a bad person or that you don't try hard enough. Um, and so when teens and adults get a diagnosis for the first time, usually the response is incredible relief. I would imagine. Uh, I, I would yeah. absolutely imagine. Um, how do you go about diagnosing? So let's start, you know, at the at the point of first concern, you want to go talk to your pediatrician. They're always okay. going to be your first contact. Okay. And your pediatrician should be able to get you to a provider who can do further evaluation. If this is a very young child, you do not want to wait to get a diagnosis in order to start treatment, right? And so, you know, some of our wait lists are six months, 12 months long. So you don't want your child just sitting around not getting help during that time. So in South Carolina, um, you can refer, um, anybody can refer a child um, under three to a program called BabyNet, where kids can get free early intervention without a diagnosis. And then if the child's over three, they can get referred to their local school district. Okay. And we have special education teachers and therapists who are trained to help kids with autism. And again, you don't need a diagnosis necessarily in order to get um, services through that school district. So while you're waiting to get the official diagnosis, you can be getting started on getting help. Um, Once a child comes to, let's say, MUSC to Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics for an evaluation, um, we're going to do a number of things. So first of all, you know, we want to do a physical exam. We want to rule out, are there other things going on that might be contributing? Can this child hear? Um, And then from there, we're going to want to do some um, structured behavioral observations. So how does the child play? How do they interact with us? How do they share their attention and their enjoyment? And we have some some specific tests that look at those skills. We also look at where they're at developmentally. Um, So, you know, if a child is extremely delayed, perhaps it's not autism, but just kind of a global developmental delay. Maybe it's just a language delay. I mean, we want to make sure that we're ruling out anything else that can be going on and potentially masquerading as autism. Mm -hmm. In older kids, I think it's really important to get to a specialist who has expertise in how autism presents in older kids if it's you know sort of your first diagnosis in older kids you know if it's a first time diagnosis for a teenager or for an adult you really want to make sure you're seeing a specialist who knows how autism presents in teens and adults and that's particularly true if you're talking about a teenage woman or teen, a teen right. girl or an adult woman because you know, a lot of people just haven't had that experience. And what you're looking for in a child is going to be very different than what you're looking for in like a teenager or an adult. Um, And so that might be a different skill set. Okay, that's good to know. And and I do know, I I have some friends who have uh, an autistic child. And I think he's almost 30 now. But back in the day, they did, they couldn't identify what his problem was. So they never had access to the resources they needed or the funding, government funding, to, to help in, in certain matters. And finally, finally, they've got that. And, you know, it's a, it's kind of a tragic situation. So what you're suggesting is really important for folks is the moment they think there's any kind of issue, go ahead and, and get all the testing and evaluation that you can. It, it's, you know, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, we've gotten to the point where the autism diagnosis is kind of a very high-stakes diagnosis. Mm. And... A lot of people who come to me for an evaluation are 
absolutely seeking a diagnosis because they know there's something going on with their child and they want help. And um, sometimes if you don't get the diagnosis, then no help is available. Right. Which, um, you know, shouldn't be the way our system works, right? Mm -hmm. Every child should be able to get the help that they need. But unfortunately, we've designed this medical system where you have to have a very specific diagnosis in order for your child to get certain therapies. And so it's become a very high stakes situation. I can imagine. What are some of the earliest signs that your child might be at risk for autism? So what's really interesting, um, we have this whole um, area of research where they have followed kids at three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, and and looked at what some of the earliest symptoms of autism might be um, and tried to figure out like what distinguishes those kids who go on to develop autism from those kids who don't. Mm. And what's really interesting is that there doesn't seem to be any reliable, indica- at least behavioral indicators prior to 12 months of who's going to go on mm. to develop autism. So it's really hard, you know, at this point, we cannot make a diagnosis of autism in a six or nine month old baby. Maybe someday we'll be able to. I hope so, because I think that would change a lot yeah. of things. But um, at this point, um, where you really start to see those trajectories divide is around 15 or 16 months. Mm. Um And at that point, a lot of what you're looking for um, is social interaction. So, you know, your 15 or 16 month old baby should be looking at you with warm, joyful expressions, making eye contact, imitating facial expressions, even if the baby is not talking yet. And then we're also looking for gesturing. Um, So we don't focus so much on language anymore because lots of kids are delayed in speech. Kids develop speech at all different times. And I think if you just focus on language, you capture too big of a group Mm -hmm. of people to be concerned about. But even kids who are delayed in speech usually use gestures appropriately and actions with objects. So when I say gestures, I mean things like blowing a kiss, waving, saying shh. Um, and um, pointing seems to be particularly important. So, um, you know, when you want to point something out to your child, when you want to share your attention and you point at something, they should look at what you're looking at by by about 15 or 16 months, and then they should also start to share their interests with you in the same way. So pointing at things that they want or pointing at things that they're interested in. So if your baby's not pointing at 15 or 16 months, if they're not looking you in the face, if they're not following the your their if they're not following your point, if they're not responding to their name, those are all huge red flags for autism. Doesn't mean it's necessarily autism. There's lots of things that we want to look at right. and evaluate. Um, but certainly reason to go talk to your pediatrician. Um, We do ask that all pediatricians screen for autism at the 18 and 24 month visit. Okay. Um, So that's supposed to be part of the normal well child visit. And the reason that we do it twice is because there does seem to be this percentage of kids, it's about 20% of kids who go on to develop autism who seem to develop pretty typically up until 18 months and then start to actually lose social skills between 18 and 24 months. Um, And so if you only screen at eight, you want to screen at 18 months because you want to pick kids up early, but if you only do it then, you're going to miss some kids at, you know, who, who lose those skills. It's very rare for kids to lose skills after 24 to 30 months. So it, there are cases where it happens. I don't think it's, I think there are probably other things going on, um, but it's very rare. So I don't want parents to sit around thinking, like, right. my yeah. child's going to suddenly disintegrate in front right. of me. That's pretty rare. It's you, If it's going to happen, it's usually between 18 and 24 months. 
Another piece of research that just came out in the last couple of years that I think is fascinating is um, they have this cohort of children that were followed very closely from infancy. And they found that um, there are kids who did not meet criteria for autism at three who did go on to meet criteria for autism at age eight. Really? So it does seem like there are some kids whose symptoms are so subtle that even when they're evaluated by the greatest experts in the world, who those are the people doing the study, they were still missed at three and then picked up later. So what I'm seeing now is a lot of kids who are getting maybe psychiatric care and someone says, do you think this child might have autism? And people say, oh, no, no, we already ruled it out. He already oh. had an autism evaluation. Um, but I think it's really important to circle back and perhaps you know consider whether it might be autism, even if it's a few years down the line. Does, does that suggest that if it is if it is autism down the line, that it's a very subtle form of it? I mean, or, do, or does it come on pretty strong? Can it come on pretty strongly in between? No, I think it's in those cases, it's usually a more subtle form. And um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, so much of impairment is dictated by our environment. Yeah. So like I have terrible handwriting. If I were forced to handwrite all my research reports, I would be incredibly functionally impaired. <laughs> But, you know, I can type everything. So my functional impairment, nobody even sees yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and that's the same case with autism. If, you know, if the environment is supportive and, um, you know, sometimes those impairments just aren't even there. But it's when the child gets to a transition. They go to right, middle school. Right. They go to high school. A lot of times when they go to college and they're on their own for the first time and we realize how much scaffolding has been provided by, like, the school or the parent that we're like, oh, my goodness, there is something going on here. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. If you have a child that was evaluated and has some form of autism, as a parent, what would you suggest would be the ideal environment to um, – to support them on this journey? So for little kids, um, most little kids with autism are gonna benefit from intensive one-on-one intervention. So that's gonna include speech therapy, occupational therapy, and something called applied behavior analysis therapy, or ABA. We know that if you look at the broad literature, the kids that do the best are those who their treatment started early and they got a lot of hours of one-on-one quality treatment. Um, And that's not to say if your child doesn't get diagnosed till later, there's no hope. Um, But on the other hand, we know that the brain is more plastic earlier in life. And so if we can get those treatments started earlier, I think it's much better. And those are the kids that seem to have the best outcomes. Um, As kids get older, we're going to be focusing on different things. And a lot of times our treatments focus on some of the comorbidities that go on with Mm, autism. So um, we see a lot of um, depression, anxiety, eating, the disordered eating, um, you know, social skill deficits in, in older kids. And so that tends to be the focus of treatment as kids get older. Um, we found that cognitive behavior therapy, which I'm sure everybody has heard about for anxiety and depression, we found it works incredibly well for kids with autism who also have anxiety and depression. Um, we also know that there are some social skills interventions that can work really, really well in helping kids sort of make progress in social skills. Um, we have a lot of medicines now that are very good at helping some of the um, kind of, I think of associated features with autism. So whether it's temper tantrums, irritability, attention problems, hyperactivity, sleep problems, um, we have medicines that are really good for helping 
those areas of concern. Unfortunately, we don't have any medicines that treat the core symptoms of autism. Uh, I was so, going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah, is there a pharmacology uh, that that could be used? Um, so there's a there's yeah. a lot of research going on in trying to find something that will help kids. You know help improve social skills. Um, but so far, nothing has been great. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of hope and then, you know, a lot of kind of failures. Um, but I, I think it might be out there. You know, I think it's, I think, you know, folks are continuing to look. Um, one of the debates that's come up in the field recently is whether or not you actually treat those restricted repetitive behaviors. So I think everyone can agree that treating social skills probably makes sense. Um, but, um, you know, the treatment of those restricted repetitive behaviors, do we want to decrease hand flapping and what difference does it make? Mm -hmm. um, you know, do we want to treat intense interests? Is that going to make a difference in the child's life? And I think it really comes down to functional impairment, right? Like, uh -huh. you know, if it's a symptom that's getting in the way for the child, then we want to give them relief. If it's something that is uncomfortable for them that they don't like. On the other hand, you know, if We've moved away from treating symptoms just because they make the child look different than everybody mm, else. Mm -hmm. So hand flapping is a great example. Um, unless it's something that's like so dramatic that it's getting in the way, which I can't even think of if I've ever seen a case like that. Um, we're not addressing hand flapping directly. Often it's a it's either a way for the person to express excitement or a coping you know a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, so to take that away from them, like you know, probably isn't helpful. So we're starting to look at these symptoms differently um, and think about what do we really want to treat here? Eye contact is another one that's real controversial. Like, should we be forcing kids mm. to make eye contact if that's something that doesn't come naturally to them or is maybe painful for them? Um, I think there's a lot of people who would argue that teaching children to make eye contact is really for the benefit of everybody else and not for the benefit of that particular child. I think as a parent, you you hear what the expert says, but you're saying, yes, but my kid, every you know, socially everybody makes fun of him or something, and so their their natural inclination is probably to protect or to, you know, insist on certain things. So how do you talk to a parent like that who probably already feels some guilt? My child has autism. What do I do? How, how did I make that happen? You know, until they understand better what the disease is about. How do you help a parent cope with that when, you know, you're saying, hey, this is a comfort um, to him to flap his hands and the mm -hmm. parent's going, but it makes him look socially awkward and ma people make fun of him and then make, you know, judgments about him. So how do you ta deal yeah. with that? I think, you know, parents are at different points on their journey with autism, right? Like a lot of times when kids come in with, when parents come in with their 18 or 24 month old baby, they're ready for that baby to be fixed. Yeah. You know, I, I want this to be over. And can you tell me exactly how long it's going to be till this whole autism thing is done? By the time you get up to, you know, five or six, you're at a very different point. You're now you've had a chance to see your child's strengths and what makes them unique. Um, and sometimes there are things that you don't want to change right. about your child yeah. because, you know, you realize that this is like these things are gifts for them. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, People are at very different points, on, you know, kind of on their journey. The point where I see parents getting really anxious is around the transition to middle school. Mm. 
Um, so I think, you know, up until middle school, kids are very tolerant of other kids' differences. Sometimes they don't even notice. Yeah. Um, I'm always amazed with what my own children didn't notice when they were, you know, in preschool or kindergarten or early elementary school. Um, you know, they're just they're just other kids yeah, to them, yeah. you know? And now that um, we mainstream so many kids with disabilities, there are so many kids that are different in so many wonderful, unique ways already in the classroom. Um, things tend to shift a little bit at middle school, and that's if you're gonna yeah. see bullying, yeah. you know, that tends to be where, where you start to see it. Yeah. And so as parents approach that transition to middle school, there's a lot of anxiety, like, oh my gosh, we still have all these difficulties. Like, how are we going to support our child and and sort of make things better? So I think you kind of have to target your conversation to where the parent is mm-hmm. and what their goals are for their child. That makes absolute sense. Does MUSC have any kind of program where you uh, consult for uh, the uh, educational system? It's really tricky. Um, so, you know, the public education system is at a point where they can't allow external people to come in because we haven't gone through their vetting, which is very similar to how MUSC is. It's not like we can just bring in anybody off the street and have them observe us or consult with us. They would have to go through our vetting process. So it's, it's, it's true in both settings, but I used to do a lot more in-school observations and attending IEP meetings, and that's become a lot harder um, as, you know, schools have sort of tightened up their policies for, for very yeah, reasonable sure. reasons. Yeah. Um, but I think what's happened, um, because, partly because of that, is that children's therapeutic programs have become very fragmented. So oh. you have you know, your speech therapist who's mm. working with the child outside of school, and the speech therapist is working with the child inside of school, and then you have their ABA therapist who's working with the child outside of school. And none of these folks are necessarily talking to each other. And I have definitely seen cases where one therapist is working really hard on signs and another therapist is working really hard on some other augmentative communication right. system like an iPad. Um, and the parents have no idea what, how the iPad works because they've never been shown how the child right. you know, works on. So everybody is doing something different. And when you're talking about a child who already has difficulty learning, right, we yeah. know that the child takes longer to learn we need to be more thoughtful about their time, you know, and make sure that we're all coordinating, that we're all using, if we're going to use signs, we all need to know the signs that child is, the sign language that that child is using um, so that we're being respectful of the time that they have in therapy. Um, So I think, you know, there are lots of protections in place for people's privacy, both in the hospital setting and the educational setting and the therapeutic setting, but sometimes that gets in the way. Sure. There's also not insurance funding for folks to collaborate with each other. Oh, wow. Right? I like didn't even think about that. What insurance is yeah. going to pay for me to sit around with the school, to sit around with the private therapist and all come together and come up with a sort of cohesive treatment program for, for a child? It makes sense, yeah. How do teachers manage it then? I mean, um, I know that they... I actually have a friend who um, specializes in autism, teaching autistic children. Um, is... Would you know whether that's a curriculum, a program of study that the that teacher went through that's pretty standardized across the country, or 
How does that work so that each child is insured to get, you know, that kind of support at school? So I think it's hugely variable, oh. right? So mm. if a teachers who are being trained now, I would guess get a lot more instruction, even if they're going through regular early childhood education programs, they're going to get a lot more instruction in how to work with dis- kids with disabilities because they're going to be in their classes. You right. know, you're going to have kids with Down syndrome and ADHD and autism in those mainstream classes. Um, whereas, you know, 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. those kids simply were not in mainstream classes. Mainstream teachers didn't need to know how to support them because they were in special education classrooms. Um, You know, I think a lot of teachers are really good about going, even if they're, you know, older and went through training, you know, years ago, like I did, um, they're really good at, um, you know, going to these continuing education training programs and learning because they have to, right? Right. Again, these kids are going to be in your class. If you, you know, if you're if you're teaching a mainstream class, you're going to have kids with learning dis- differences, behavioral differences. Um, at this point, very few kids are shuttled away into special education separate classrooms. That's just not the model we're probably, using. Anymore. Yeah, probably those that would be most ris- disruptive or something might be shuttled out. Or um... yeah, it depends a lot on the district and on the age of the child. Okay. Um, but really, the value at this point is to bringing kids into the mainstream. And you know, I think there's a lot of benefit. There's a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges. Yeah. But I can tell you the benefits that I've seen even with my own children is the tolerance, right? Yeah. Like when I was in school, I never saw a person with a disability. And I remember like, you know, when I would see someone who was visually impaired or hearing impaired, it was almost scary, yeah. right? I had no experience with those people. Um, but now those people are my colleagues, yeah. right? We yeah. have colleagues who are visually impaired. We have colleagues with cerebral palsy. Um, we have coll- I have many colleagues with autism because of what I do. I have friends with autism. And so um, my perspective has changed through that exposure. And I'm so thrilled that for my kids, that's been baked in from the beginning of their education. And I'm not going to pretend like there's no not problems with, you know, mainstreaming kids. There are certainly challenges. But there are real benefits. Absolutely. And, and for the autistic person, because I can imagine if they feel a certain amount of acceptance, um, that can only help them as they move forward on that journey of autism and, and whatever treatments they're getting. They, I, I think that's wonderful. Plus, the fact that you brought up something earlier, which I be- truly believe in. So you have people with autism that we know, the high-tech guys, I think, uh, and they bring something to the table because they have this incredible brain activity going on. It's it's kind of fascinating. It's interesting. You know, we used to think that autism was, um, that savantism, which is right. what Dustin Hoffman right. had, right? Like, remember how he, um, the matches fell over the floor and he's like, there's 154 of them or something. Yeah. Um, we used to think that savantism was very common in autism, and it's turned out that it's no more common in autism than it is in the general population. Oh, okay. So in the general population, you do find people who are just amazing and can look at matches on the floor and count how many they are. What's more common in autism is that you have a specific focus on something. Mm, So mm -hmm. if your focus is on maps, sometimes you get a high level of achievement in the area of geography and, and knowing about maps. Or if you're spending hours a day practicing the piano or drawing, of course you get much better at it. So there is certainly savantism in autism. I, I have seen it. Um, but it doesn't seem to be something specific to okay. autism. Okay. Um, let's address another, I, I would think, is a um, 
disinformation is uh, when we have seen in the news when um, you know some violence has occurred, um, the uh, perpetrator has been you know they've said oh they were autistic or something, and I don't know how strong those. Um, those diagnoses were, or how real they were, but I know that at one point there was uh, discussion about people with autism are um, violent. Can you kind of dispel that or give us mm -hmm. at least a clarity on that? So first of all, I think the most important statistic to know is that people with autism are much more likely to be the victims of crime uh, than the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. um, my team has done quite a bit of research um, looking at um, interactions between people with autism and the Department of Juvenile Justice, as well as in SLED, the um, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. And what we found is that um, they don't, people with autism don't seem to have more interactions with those systems. Unfortunately, the other finding we have is that once people with autism are in the system, they are not treated any differently. Mm, so okay. we're not seeing a whole lot of differences in terms of diversion, um, maybe considerations for sentencing. It's certainly possible that at the point that the person is arrested, there may be different treatments, you know, different different ways that the police handle those kind of interactions for people with autism versus, yeah. you know, versus other folks. Um, that wasn't in our data set, um, that kind of very early difference. But once they're there in the system, there is n doesn't seem to be any special consideration for autism. And I certainly have seen that in my own legal work. So, mm. um, you know, when I do legal consulting, um, what I'm told by the lawyers is that you can say that a you know that a person the perpetrator has autism and a jury will say so what mm. you know what difference does that make they still committed the crime um, so you know that the my research sort of lines up with what I have seen in my own life um, I also have had patients who have been arrested for symptoms that are clearly related to their autism. Oh, so yeah. we've, you know, there are zero tolerance policies in school for what's called sexual harassment. And if you have um, a little boy who touches a little girl, um, you know, because he doesn't re you know, understand boundaries right. or, you know, for some other reason, maybe he's a, like a little bit preoccupied with her. We have had patients um, that have been arrested by mm. the police um, for behaviors like that, which is not useful, right? right? Like if you have someone with a skill deficit, they do not understand personal space, they do not understand social rules, punishing them isn't going to change anything. Right. What we need to do is we need to teach them those social skills that they're lacking. Right. Um, you know, I don't speak Japanese. You could punish me all day long for not speaking <laughs> Japanese. And it wouldn't teach me Japanese. Right. I, you know, you would have to take the time to teach me that foreign language. And the same thing goes for kids with autism where social, you know, social norms, social rules, the way you're supposed to behave in public. A lot of these kids are super smart. They will learn if you teach them. Yeah. But you have to take a um, a teaching approach and not a punitive right. You know, and certainly not a legal approach. That's not going to help anybody. Right. So that that suggests to me that um, you know you've talked about having children evaluated between eighteen and twenty four months, and then and then at, at maybe at eight years old when they start if they exhibit. But but those children in first, second, third grade, whatever. Um, if it's not common to do that kind of evaluation. 
how would one be able to, I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, when a child does something like that, if the teacher knows they're autistic, you would hope that there would be standards in place to manage that. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like there are. I think that's what I'm trying no, to get think, to. Do you know? I think it changes um, people's perspective. So when a child doesn't have a diagnosis, you might think that they're being oppositional. Um, and so the... Um, the instinct might be to go to a much more rigid right. style, you know, lots of timeouts, lots of consequences. You need to stay in at recess versus once you understand the child's diagnosis, you're going to go to a much more remedial style. Mm -hmm. Like, OK, you know, when we get upset, we don't throw the crayons across the room. Here's what you can do. Um, so kind of teaching it, it, it. I think it does move people to change their right. perspective. Um, when, you know, one thing I want to say. Um, is that we do broad screening at 18 and 24 months. We're not necessarily looking for kids who are okay, school age. Gotcha. At that point, it's really once kids start having difficulty that they would come to clinical gotcha. attention. But we're not, I don't think there's enough, the, the yield would not be big enough Understood. to do yeah. broad screening in okay. school age children. I think you would capture so many kids with so many different diagnoses right. at that point, yeah. like right, you would be capturing if you did a broad screening in any elementary school, you would be capturing kids with ADHD and anxiety and learning problems, um, and so nobody's recommending broad screening gotcha. for school age kids. But we definitely want to see broad screening in the little kids. Right, right. That makes sense. That's good to know. Do children outgrow this disease? Is that a possibility? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Um, there have been a couple of really important studies published showing that about 10% of kids will no longer show observable symptoms by the time they reach like middle childhood. Um, and so, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens to those kids down the line. You know, once they get to college, is, is it different? But, but it does seem like 10% of kids um, have, you know, kind of optimal outcomes. Um, and um, a lot of those kids have gotten really good intervention mm, and supports mm -hmm. along the way. Um, you know, for the rest of the kids, um, the level of support needed is highly variable. So, you know, there are kids who, sure, they have some symptoms of autism and they've got some sensory differences, but they're pretty easy to accommodate and um, they're, you know, thriving pretty well. There's not a lot of functional impairment from the autism itself. And then we've got kids who have pretty significant needs um, yeah. and you know are gonna go on to need supports probably for the rest of their lives. Mm. And so we need to be able to plan for all potential Absolutely, outcomes, absolutely. You know? I've heard people talk about neurodiversity. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so neurodiversity is a movement that's been um, put forward by um, people who have autism themselves, mm. um, they've sort of been the leaders of this movement. And the idea is that um, people are different and that we need to value those differences. And so I think we've all kind of come to value diversity when we think of racial diversity or you know gender diversity, um, but we haven't thought as much about neurodiversity mm -hmm. and differences in the way that brains process information. Um, and so, um, these advocates, I mean, I think they've really made some important contributions in terms of saying, like, not everything in autism is pathological. Not everything needs to be treated. Some of these features are just differences. Um, there has been a conflict um, between 
um, some people in the neurodiversity movement who feel that only people with autism should speak for people with autism mm. and parents who feel that they are obligated to speak for their child who cannot yet speak right. for themselves. Um, and, you know, I think um, we need to have respect on both ends. Pe- adults with autism are experts on their own autism, and we need to respect that. We need to listen to how they want to be spoken of. So many adults with autism believe that autism is their identity, so they want to be referred to as autistic adults, not adults with autism. On the other hand, parents are also experts on their own children, and they know what their children need, um, and we need to have respect for them as well. And so I think right now there's, you know, just growing pains and and having um, those groups of folks listen to each other because they both have important things to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We spoke very briefly about this, but uh, can you kind of uh, expand on any breakthrough discoveries in terms of treatment, either behavioral or uh, pharmaceutical? Um, Anything specific that you could share with us that may be uh, new on the horizon? So, um, you know, I think that um, the mainstay of treatment for small children is still that intensive behavioral intervention. Um, we're looking at different models for delivering it. So there's a lot of folks who, you know, reasonably say that a model of having 40 hours a week of one-on-one treatment is not sustainable. Mm. Um, how are we going to pay for all of that? Now, you know, certainly there are people who, um, researchers who will look at the economics and say, yes, it's very expensive at age two, but the lifelong savings are well worth it. But in response to that, there's been some other models that have been developed looking at group treatments. Um, so one of them is the Early Start Denver model. Um, they have a really nice parent training component, a preschool component, and it's less of a focus on that one-on-one 40-hour mm-hmm. a week that you see in more traditional ABA. I haven't seen a lot of Early Start Denver model, any Early Start Denver model here in South Carolina yet, but I would imagine that it's coming. Okay. And you know, part of the benefit is that it is something potentially more feasible and less expensive to be able to deliver. Um, it always feels crazy to talk about cost when it comes to Yeah, that's such a hard, yeah. right? Like, mm. you know. Um, You're absolutely right. Mm. If I, I, you know, I, I don't know where to fall on that. I mean, I want to devote all the resources we can to helping young kids yes. and not have to consider cost, especially because we do know that, you know, the cost savings in the long run can be astronomical, right? Yeah, um, right. And, and not only that, the, the social benefit, the productivity, the contribution to society right. is so much more enriched um, right. when these folks have this opportunity, this chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID, how has that affected um, children being treated uh, with autism? Is it harder to do like telehealth with them or even teleeducation with them? Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I mean, I think it's just like any other child. Some of my patients have thrived with ah. being at home, you know, and like we've taken away that social component. Now, I don't know how good that is for them in the long run, yeah. but school can be a very stressful place for for a person with autism. And so if you can learn at home, some of my patients have been super happy. Um, on the other hand, you know, those kids with more significant needs are not going to benefit from telehealth type of treatment. They're not going to be able to sit behind a computer and listen to um, a teacher. I feel like we've been pretty lucky in South Carolina that the majority of therapists um, 
you know, continued to see their patients right through the worst of the pandemic. That's impressive. And our schools did a good job of getting our kids with disabilities back into school, which I think was the right decision, um, you know, because otherwise they would have had an entire lost yeah. year. Yeah. Um, so I think in South Carolina, I, I feel that we've actually handled the pandemic really well for kids with disabilities. I think where the difficulty comes in, oh, well, there's lots of difficulties, but I've had a lot of difficulty as a diagnostician. Um, kids are, it, there's been a delay in referring kids. And then once they come to see me, um, it can be really tricky because they many kids have not been in a structured preschool setting. Um, and so I'm missing this whole wealth of information that oh, I normally yeah. would mm -hmm. have on kids who are coming in. And so all I can rely on is how the child is doing at home and how I see them in clinic. And I'm not getting the information from the community that I would normally have. So I think long run, we're probably looking at delays in identification, mm. which is bad. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I don't know what the trickle down effect from that is going to be. But it has been interesting to see the kids who have kind of thrived. Yeah, pandemic I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm glad to hear that there is some optimism. So, there. Some silver lining. Yeah, for sure. So let's discuss the research. This is Science Never Sleeps. Tell me about the research going on in autism. So we have a couple of really exciting studies going on here at MUSC. Um, one is called SPARC. Um, this is a national study. Mm. Um, we are looking for um, all of the genetic pathways to autism. Um, so you know, our eventual goal is to get 50,000 people with autism, as well as both biological parents, and sequence their DNA to wow. understand you know, what is causing autism in different people with different presentations. Um, South Carolina has been an incredibly successful recruitment site. Um, you know, we've been running this study for about four years here in South Carolina. We've had so many people participate. It's super easy. So we collect gen genetic information through saliva, mm -hmm. through spit tubes, um, and you know we can help people participate, but we also have a way to allow them to participate at home so they never have to come in and get any exposure to COVID or anything else they're concerned about. So we can actually send those spit kits right to them in their homes. So that's one study that I'm really excited about. And I... Um, you know, we definitely need more diversity in that right, study. Right. Just like, you know, any research study needs diversity, but particularly genetic research, right. right? We need, you know, people of color. We need people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. So um, those are, you know, we're looking for everybody at this point. Um, and then the other studies that we're just getting started right now, we have a number of studies looking at using telehealth to deliver treatment to kids who um you know, either are low SES or live in um, rural areas where it's hard to get mm -hmm. access to good treatment. Right. Um, so we're using a treatment model called Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, or PCIT. And um, the goal of this treatment is to help parents manage behavior. So we're not fixing autism, but we are helping parents with, you know, the temper tantrums and the defiance that you sometimes see in young kids. Um, and so we just wrapped up one study looking at that, and we're starting two more looking Great. at how to deliver that that treatment right in people's homes and people love it. You know, they love that they don't have to, in order to get therapy, they don't have to get in their car, drive right. all the way to MUSC, find parking. Um, you know, we are there. You bring it to in them. In their home yeah. where they're struggling with their child. Right. So I 
I really believe in this treatment model, and um, I think it's going to be very successful. Can you tell us how those who would be interested could learn more about these clinical trials? Yes. Um, please call us. Um, we are standing by. Um, our phone number is 843-714-1352, and we would love to tell people more about these studies. I, I hope everybody takes advantage of that. This is These are wonderful opportunities to be engaged and to uh, help your children and help um, help your friends' children as well. So, Dr. Carpenter, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. I hope this discussion provides clarity and comfort to our listeners and support for those diagnosed with autism. Ongoing research is key to treatment options and care. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed having you here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you for your continued enthusiastic support. Stay tuned for next month's podcast. Thank you.